When looking back at the world's great civilizations, one notes they all reached an expiration point. What drives their decline and ultimate collapse, however, is one of the most debated topics in history. According to noted scholars Joseph Tainter and John Michael Greer, collapse occurs when civilization reaches a point of unsustainable complexity that requires ever-growing amounts of resources that are increasingly hard to obtain, making them vulnerable to internal and external shocks. Tonight we're joined by Twitter collapsologist Borzoi to discuss these tendencies as they pertain to the United States, Western, and modern civilization as a whole. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. I'm Hank Oslo and I'm joined by a full house tonight as well as a very special guest. Uh, we've got Adam Smith. Hey everyone. Hans Lander. Hello. Nick Mason. Hola. And joining us again, it's Borzoi Boscovich. Ecstatic to be here, boys. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about collapse, the graph, the many graphs, <laughs> the many books about the graphs, the graph of books about graphs. It's going up. Talking about rest and, That's what we're talking we're, about tonight. <laughs> We're focusing mostly on, uh, there's a whole suite of these people, this uh, sort of, I don't know, like academic subfield almost, um, really sprang into popularity um, in sort of the the late 60s, early 70s or so with kind of ecological thinking. But in terms of systems theory and the most concise uh, explanation, um, I actually read this uh, book back in uh, in college. Um, it was a signed reading. I thought it was very um, uh, insightful back in the day, and it's still it's one of my favorite uh, favorite nonfiction books. It's a brisk read too by uh, Edward Tainter, um, the uh, collapse of complex societies. Although it's applicable to just about any uh, sort of resource extraction system, and. A lot of the authors in this field seems to draw either explicitly or implicitly upon uh, this model, and almost none of them contradict it, that uh, essentially you have a low-hanging fruit scenario with uh, some sort of resource extracting uh, system, if that's a tribe or a government or a corporation. And so they extract the low-hanging fruit, like they figure out how to um, get very, you know, high high energy density out of something like coal. And they use that for a while, and then they start figuring out how to extract marginal uh, gains. So they build systems to recapture some of the waste product, um, you know, increasing degrees of refinement. They branch out into different grades of production, 
um, they uh, start uh, taxing uh, more marginal economic activity, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is that those marginal resource extracting or productive uh, operations themselves require upkeep, that capital needs to be fed in order to be maintained. So the entire edifice is extracting resources more and more efficiently. It's getting higher and higher, closer to 100% utilization through the creation of structures that require energy to be expended in order to uh, operate. So although the efficiency of the system as a whole in terms of resource utilization is increasing, the efficiency in terms of the marginal output per uh, energy unit or dollar or you know hour of labor or whatever is decreasing. So the fragility of the system increases because, of course, these uh, these marginally productive activities depend on uh, having these marginal sources uh, available to them. And eventually there's some systemic shock, um, some external um, thing that happens. That means that that infrastructure can no longer be maintained. It can no longer be gracefully dismantled. So instead you have a non-graceful collapse. Is this only applicable to non-renewable resources? Uh, no, because you can have renewable resources. Really, like this is uh, this is a characteristic of anything where you have uh, complex systems of capital that require upkeep. Okay. So, like you can you can imagine like uh, there are good places and bad places to put solar panels, for instance. So you've already covered the uh, you know the Gobi Desert or whatever okay. diminishing solar panels. And so now you're like. Uh, maybe we can fit one in like behind that woodshed like in England where it rains constantly, but you're still depending on that output. So when suddenly there's some exogenous, you know, volcano goes off and sunlight drops, mm -hmm. there's still a guy out there servicing that solar panel, even though it's theoretically renewable. You still have like an actual solar panel there that you've got to clean off and they get dented every so often. Mm -hmm. And that can't be gracefully dismantled since you no longer have the energy surplus to gracefully dismantle that, which is actually like you have to plan that, you have to move people around, you have to decide who gets the shaft. That's very difficult to do. So really it's, it's when I say like it's a systems thing, like it, it applies to, you know, as corporations get bigger, they get like less efficient at the margin on doing stuff, even though their total output increases. Mm -hmm. The same thing with like government departments that have like less and less worthwhile programs, even as their budget and the total amount of stuff that they do increases. And a lot of these works, um, you know, like I said, they take this model and they just sort of run with it. Um, to the point where you get the uh, the graph, which I'm going to force Borzoi to uh, to narrate a uh, audio description of the graph here in a moment. Okay, let me pull it up so I can get ready for that. But uh, the uh, most of them they do a mix of case studies where this general model was the case, um, or extrapolations where they imply that uh, you know our society too uh, must have its inevitable downfall. And would you say that there's a, a correlation between increased misallocation of capital expenditure and complexity? So as things get more complex, you're you're basically wasting money. You're investing poorly. 
you're developing products and services that aren't really worth it because of you know the immense scale that you have. You're under the impression that the scale that you currently have and can continue to support allows you to be riskier than you really should. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you have you have because like the marginal uh, investment has kind of uncertain payoffs um, because it is so like marginal in the sense of it's the next thing that you do, and also marginal in the sense of like barely worthwhile. So at a certain point, like you know, fifty percent of your projects are paying off, um, even to break even, and then it drops even below that, and it just starts running on inertia. Um, until there's a systemic shock that causes, um, I mean, that's, that's the thing, like this model is kind of in contrast to a purely cyclical, um, like a smooth cyclical, like, oh, you gradually get bigger and then you gradually get smaller. It's like you get bigger, it becomes unsustainable. There's a shock and then there's a collapse. So there's an asymmetry, uh, between the, uh, the rise and the, uh, the fall here, um, that, you know, up until the moment of that collapse, you have uh, you have like the appearance of actual growth, and you actually do have growth. Let, let me ask uh, maybe a, an expository question that can help the audience and myself. So, why is the fragility of the system more fragile the larger it gets? In other words, why wouldn't the external shock affect it just as much when it's maybe eighty percent as big as it is as a hundred percent big? Why is it? Uh, why is the the sharp downfall only, or more, or more often happening at the at the top versus maybe a little bit before the top? So imagine that you have like a really big corporation, and suddenly there's like a twenty percent uh, drop in demand for its main product. You have a lot more stuff that you have to tear down and a lot less stuff that you can do in terms of corrective uh, action because you've already sucked most of the juice out. Like you got that big because you have a really tight less supply chain. The larger you yeah. get. Versus like, you know, you have some, uh, you know, auto mechanic or something and business drops off because there's a recession. Right. It's like, well, there you actually is headroom there because like, as an individual, like he can live on 20% less, right, like right, right, right. he can, uh, you know, try to compete with, you know, his dozens of competitors around him. Right. Uh, he has a lot more freedom of movement. Like he's mm -hmm. probably not the like absolute most efficient. Like right. I've like I've squeezed every iota of productive capacity out of my personal social and economic capital. Okay. I have a um... intuitive, but it, I mean, like the the principle holds. Right. I, have a, I have a question relating to a specific part of what Tainter says. So, in I think it's the second chapter, he talks about the nature of complexity. So, in his mind, two concepts important to understanding the nature of complexity are inequality and heterogeneity. So, inequality, I think. Uh, is pretty self-explanatory. He just explains it as inequality may be thought of as vertical differentiation, ranking or unequal access to material and social resources. But heterogeneity, I think, is is much more important to the mind of, of Tainter, and I think this would probably be accepted by anyone who does systems analysis. I'm also thinking of someone like Peter Turchin, who does um, something similar to this with cliodynamics. 
but he's talked about heterogeneity and management of heterogeneity before, but it's generally referred to as the number of distinctive parts or components to a society at the same time to the ways in which a population is distributed among these parts. My question would be, uh, as a society breaks down and it continues to break down, is it partially due to a lack of desire to manage the heterogeneity, to, uh, in other words, limit it, and to develop social technology or to properly manage your institutions to more firmly guide the development of a society and instead you allow it to produce various identities, produce various components that might be poor utilizations of capital, poor utilizations of time, of resources, of energy, of people's familial bonds, so on. Is there sort yeah. of a, a death spiral effect that starts to take hold when you, you stop managing society? Yeah, I mean, when you have heterogeneity, um, like uh, when you have a like that, that translates directly to the notion of complexity um, in terms of like internal complexity, because you end up with things like a lot more uh, factions that are making very obscure um, alliances. You have a lot more obvious trade-offs. Um, I mean, just purely ascribing it to a lack of will. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a, you know, I don't know if you can ascribe, like, we're not willing to govern this because, like, it's more of a problem versus we're not willing to govern this because we're, uh, you know, this heterogeneity is also how you eke out those marginal gains. I mean, that's almost indistinguishable to me. Like you see this in immigration rhetoric where we need to, we need the next generation of consumers and it's like, okay, well, are you not willing to uh, enforce like a stable society because like this is actually to your benefit or like, I think that's not, yeah, the best example in our sort of sphere of discussion that comes to most people's minds when they think of like, what is going on? Why are these corporations sort of destroying the long-term stability of the country and the system they operate in, in exchange for this short-term boost to their profits? I mean, I think it's it's just the incentive structure of, of our economy. Yeah. I mean, this is also, it's not just, I mean... On a systemic level, the economy is a huge part of that. But this is something that uh, John Michael Greer does t- uh, touch on a bit in Decline and Fall because he, he he's building on Tainter and he's looking at this. He's a uh, Greer himself is a big believer in basically like of the M- the imperial aspect of the system. And what Greer talks about in that book is you have these you have you just have different groups is that you once you have this structure in place and it's basically kind of running on its own inertia and people aren't thinking anymore about what's actually sustaining it it inevitably devolves into you have different constituent groups basically just fighting for their own larger piece of the pie without any regard whatsoever to the long-term stability of it because they've just come to take it for granted or they don't feel any connection to it or there's a number of it's basically you have a a number of multifaceted elements to it that occur it's one of the it's like it's um kind of like what they call the wicked problem where it's these are when you step back and look you can see all these problems connected but when you're there like these aren't things that people think about I wonder so, if this this is similar to the very lazy social technology 
that yeah, I think so. free market conservatives have, which is essentially, well, you just let things run themselves. Why would why would you why would you try and manage the economy? I mean, in, in that their mind, works like in kind of sub macro complexity right. terms, but. I mean, then you're subject to macro trends. It, it, well, I was, yeah, they're well. First of all, they're they're being disingenuous. But I think that honestly, it, it is worth pointing out that um, there, there's a there's a good book that is sort of a, a good introduction to this. And I, it's just called Complexity: A Guided Tour. It's by no means a tome, and it's by no means the end all be all on the subject. But it's a good uh, introduction for a lot of you out there. But the author very quickly early on describes the the field of complex systems as the research into how complex nodes or networks are, or, are purposefully organized. The assumption is that a complex system is purposefully organized for some specific purpose and it's actually managed. The reason why systems break down, and I think this is what Tainter eventually gets to, is that because they become fundamentally unmanaged or mismanaged uh, for whatever reason, whether it's laziness, whether it's it's lack of knowledge or capability, or it's lack of willpower, um, poor social technology, or, there's a, a hundred possible reasons, right? But the assumption is that there is intentionality in what you do and how you actually manage social interactions, how you contain heterogeneity. Heterogeneity is, is a bad thing. You want to contain it as much as possible. I think that that is sort of what we're trying to get at is why a lot of these societies, why a lot of these nations throughout history, kingdoms have died and died sometimes very badly. It's because you know they're fundamentally mismanaged right up until the end. And then yes. they're unable, they're not only unable to withstand external shocks, but many of the dynamics that created the system to begin with simply could not be replicated. At a certain and, and they also remain in denial constantly about their about their decline. This is actually uh, I was going through today a, a panel he did with Kunstler, uh, Orloff, uh, two other guys. But Greer, John Michael Greer, for example, believes that we are already kind of in the early uh, stages of the collapse, and he likens this and he does this a lot where he likens thing and likens our situation to a lot of the empires throughout history. He's a big believer in kind of like that cyclical theory of, of things. And even after the Roman empire in the West had collapsed, people were basically insisting that they were still the Roman empire, that it was still a thing that they, you know, you get into the, yeah. into these cases of people basically still LARPing as though they are the Roman empire. And Greer, well, for example, look believe, at the name of our country. When, Would you call yeah. us United? Yeah. Are we United well, that, States? That, you know, yeah, that's, that's something that actually to. says where he, where he says that uh, you know it may be that in two hundred years, whatever warlord is in charge of the largest swath of the United States is going to still be calling himself the president of the United States of America. It's the Holy uh, United States, Holy yeah. Roman Empire. <laughs> so you mentioned Greer. Um, Greer's kind of a weird guy. Um, do you want yes, to talk yes. about him uh, as a person? <laughs> I guess he won't be coming on the show anytime soon, but yes, let's do that. I I say weird is a positive thing. Like all of the best writers are are interesting because they have interesting takes that are novel and strange to people's understanding. And weird is a good shorthand from that. But yeah, that's a uh, passable save. But yeah, 
If, if you're John, listening, John, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you on the show. John Michael Greer is the king of the nerds, basically. Because I can't, I, everything about him just screams giant nerd. I mean, be, like, let's not even talk about his like actual serious stuff. I mean, the guy writes uh, Lovecraftian fiction for one. He he do, he basically kind of does like the um, his own like homesteading thing. I, I forget exactly how he does all that, but he is into the occult. He was the he was the literal arch druid in the United States for a period of time, a member of a pagan organization. I mean, like he was doing the full nerd LARP basically. In addition to that, however, he has he's an incredibly prolific author who's written both fiction and nonfiction and he explores things from this he's basically is the one who started who popularized this idea of catabolic collapse so the way things break down over time with your with the resources and the infrastructure and he's written basically his books if you read them in chronological order you see what he's building towards of what he calls the ecotechnic future or basically it's a, a he's looking at a post peak oil future where what after we go through a scavenger society what do we fashion out of that with what remains and what we have on hand he's in addition to that he's also a huge he's also a huge fan of history so he explores all these things from spenglerian and toynbee's perspectives on this in fact on his deindustrial reading list he highly recommends that people uh, read both Decline of the West and whatever Toynbee's work was called. I can't remember off the top of my head. And comparing a study and, of history. Yes, a study of history. And comparing and contrasting those two and then picking a dead civilization and following its exact trajectory from the uh, from the from its high point all the way to its decline and all the events that happened into it and seeing what lessons can apply today. So he's like it's hard to kind of encompass the kind of person that John Michael Greer is. Cause he's just that guy who is into weird stuff and is interested in basically everything. There's, there's a couple others that have, I think a lot of that stuff started with Gibbon really, you know, the decline of all the Roman empire. There's a, this, uh, session with charting the fall of an empire, taking a huge interest in why exactly something fails and then attempting to, place the dynamics of your current period and what you maybe predict 20, 30 years out onto the fate of a, of a long dead empire that had vastly different cultural dynamics from you. I think, I think it was, I think it was really Gibbon who started this trend and made it a huge part of, of the Western uh, history, historiographical canon, I guess you could call it. Um, there, there have been others like Toynbee, Glub, E.C. Hall, uh, Tainter, obviously, I think is probably the most prolific, um, uh, maybe outside Toynbee, but Tainter is probably the most well-known at this point. Um, I'm not really sure where this comes from, and maybe this is actually a sign of impending collapse, that you have a, in intense interest in studying falls of empires before you, and trying to actively placate your mind with, you know, um, com parallels. Yeah. Between what I mean, that, that's been a thing now. for, like, maybe, I don't know, Peloponnesian War isn't really about the fall of an empire, per se, but, I mean, it's describing historical processes in a way that, like, the goal is to learn from them. I mean, like, yeah, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was written in, like, 1790 or something. 
Yeah, it was 18th century work. Yeah. I mean, there are parts of, if you actually read history of the Peloponnesian War, there are times when uh, Thucydides makes political commentary, or he'll, he'll give you insight into why a specific Greek kingdom um, was unable to perform well in the war, or why exactly they cited the way that they cited, or why exactly they lost. He tries to give you some insight into uh, the cultural dynamics, and and it could be very well that that the, there was a uh, at the time a contemporary political reason to do that to try and prevent certain remaining Greek kingdoms from suffering the same fate. Um, I would say that Herodotus did that to an extent. So did um, um, who wrote the lives of the Greeks and Romans? Um, Pliny, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, this has existed for a while, but what I think you've seen the last couple hundred years has been, especially the last 40, 50, has been an intense interest in studying why it is that civilizations fall. And it could be that there is a, a real uh, determination at the higher levels that um, we've created a very outscaled macro-civilization that has multiple sub-civilizations and there's a lot at stake. And if one goes down, you could look at something like the Bronze Age collapse where multiple civilizations go down well, because trade is never... Uh, I, John Kerry explicitly said that. Like John Kerry had a bit uh, during the Obama years where he was talking about uh, managing the decline. About America? Yeah. Or the West? Yeah, or what? he was like, well, we're going into a more multipolar world right. and uh, we're just trying to like manage the... I think it was John Kerry. Um it was either Kerry or uh, Obama himself, but I think it was Kerry. Um, but he was basically, you know, America will no longer be the the world's foremost, or not. He probably didn't say foremost, but will no longer be this kind of uh, hegemonic hyperpower. That was kind and of a need thing to manage ourselves into that during Obama. Um, I don't know if you guys know who Ian Bremmer is. I have a lot of issues oh, with God. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hans, I'm glad you know who he is at least. But um, he was he was shilling his book during that probably He's a terrible that writer. time. Uh, and he was calling uh, calling it like a multipolar world, I think was the title. Something along those lines. I'll put the actual title in the show notes. But his whole thing was, you know, we've we've sort of lost the hegemony after the Cold War and we've, we've entered in a, into a second sort of end of history era where things are not going to be like they were before. It's a basic thesis, but, you know, he kind of goes into sort of what America needs to do. And it's, that's probably the sort of discussion circles that Kerry was in in sort of putting forward that concept of like we need to you know work with other people and frankly I don't disagree but you know our obvious you know opinion of the State Department is slightly different than his but uh, you know you can't really get away from glaringly obvious facts that China has risen Russia is no longer on its on its knees it's it's gotten up at least and uh, things are not like they were in 1992. That that kind of thing as well. I mean, what you're 
with like the basically like the system being self-aware or the people within the system being self-aware of this stuff. I mean, you can see that as well with the limits of growth, which was commissioned. You know, it was either late '60s, early '70s uh, when it was first commissioned. But well, I mean, it even was like in response to the oil shock, I think. Right. I mean, it was the '70s. But kind it was of very like contemporary. I think the, it came from the Club of Rome. It yes. came out of these groups that were <laughs> were really incensed at the idea of peak oil, which proved to be yeah. total horseshit. The, well, the point of why I wanted to bring that up, because, well, I mean, you can't talk about the graph without talking about limits to growth. So, well, I know when we get to that, we'll be able to talk about that. But there was this question of of why of why this stuff is become of this, the collapse of civilization becomes suddenly interesting, especially like in the last 50 years. And to that, I would have to probably say, I mean, like that anyone who's paying attention has that knows that sense of like you're if you're not growing, you're dying. And there has been in or in the case of an empire, if you're not winning, you're dying. And that there's been that sense in America for a long time. People are very aware of it. Uh, John Michael Greer did an interview with a guy when uh, on a one of his more recent books based about the religion of progress and an example he cites to this interviewer. Of the sense that, like, of the real sense that people feel about this, about living in decline, is you used to be, you used to be with, in terms of space, that you had people who were, you know, huge aficionados of like hard science fiction and of the actual, you know, rockets and the science, you know, all, all the hard science that goes behind that stuff with conventions and, and conventions and everything like that. And those are dying off. Like if you go to a convention about space, about specifically about space, you're going to see a much, much older generation there. And that generation is fading off. It's, you know, the oldest ones are going to basically it's going to be mostly baby boomers at this point. Uh, Xers, millennials, they're not going to these things because there's a very real sense that nobody believes that they're, that they're going to space. No one believes that. Yep. That's a dream of another time period of, of that scene descendant. Everybody knows, everybody who's paying attention knows we're in decline. And so it, inevitably your thoughts turn towards well, what other, what was going on in other civilizations when they were going through their decline? That's a great question. I, I mean, do we have any particulars we want to focus on? I mean, Rome gets picked over ad infinitum, but um, Rome is overrated. I mean, I, I, think, I think the Brits are such a better, and like, it's honestly not that far in the past. Yeah, yeah and so is the Austro-Hungarian the Austro Empire. We have just such good records from the Brits, too. I, They're all in English. I also find the I actually also find the decline of the Ottoman Empire to be very fascinating with its Janissary revolt and mm. the uh, and its attempt in its waning days to basically try and make uh, civic imperialism uh, an ideology they called Ottomanism to make it actually work in their empire. Interesting. Well, it's interesting to see the Ottoman Empire failing. The rise of Ataturk is fascinating if you live in a multi-ethnic country. Yeah. Because then it that's a, a great study in um, what exactly happens when uh, the old order breaks down and the ethnic groups start sizing each other up and seeing what exactly they can take from one another and what territories they can establish as rapidly as possible. And the Turks uh, at the time as well had a very poor ethnic sense of self. They, you know, to be called a Turk, that was like uh, many of them would balk at that because, like, that's when you say Turkey, they're thinking of like the, you know, the the Turkmen, these, you know, the more like the dirt farmers and these nomadic peoples that are out in the, 
you know, in the hinterland. These are, you know, if you were, especially like in the Istanbul area, if you were in the Constantinople area, I mean, like you were an Ottoman, that's what you were. And that was a word that was basically very fluid in, in its meaning, like even what was an Ottoman at that point. And that's why I find that to be a very fascinating analog, because White Americans, I think, are going through a very similar thing where there's no defined, there doesn't seem to be this defined ethnic group for white Americans. And they, they had, the Turks at least had the benefit of, of having more of a sense of self. And the, the language was a huge aspect of that. But that was a problem that they were having going into. And that's what led to the rise of the young Turks, partially, was to basically create this sense of Turkishness. Yeah, I, I think that, honestly, though, Rome is, there's a lot you can draw from the, the the analysis of the collapse of Rome. Also, shockingly, no one ever really talks about the collapse of the Greek kingdoms or the Greek states. That seems to go by the wayside yeah. uh, a lot. I, I'm not, I've never really been clear why, because I think. Well, yeah, the Z-Man should... thinks that it was uh, too much democracy or something, but, you know, don't quote me on that or him, frankly. I've just, well, it, I've vaguely the seen historical, some theories. The historical blindness towards the Byzantines is partially because all of the writers are writing from a perspective of Western Christianity, which had, like, a, a almost direct uh, relationship to the Roman, the Western Roman Empire. I mean, the Eastern, especially because at the time where most of the historiography uh, was being written, like that was a completely foreign land that had been conquered and basically depopulated by um, the, the Turks. Uh, really there, <laughs> there was also a weird um, crossover with uh, some of the political movements there, like the notion of Byzantine politics, as opposed to uh, the, the notion of like the, uh, the prudent, uh, the prudent Western uh, European uh, prince um, that had some crossover too. But I mean, a, a lot of it, I think also is that the records just weren't that great comparatively because of, you know, the, the lack of things that were preserved and the language barriers and everything else, like particularly for a contemporary audience. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I would agree with you, Hank, that uh, looking at the fall of the Brits, looking at maybe the fall of Canada, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, probably the, the, the best means of, if you want to, analyzing the, you know, the rapid decline of the United States. I mean, honestly, even like corporations, you can look at an arbitrary, mm. an arbitrary collapsed corporation. The collapse of Sears. Stuff that you can get. You can get a handle on it and you can see all these dynamics. You can like, it's not actually that hard to go and talk to some retired vice president at one of these places. And it's always super interesting whenever you meet like a retired boomer who, you know, had a long career in one of these huge companies. It's like ask them about the internal politics or what they actually did. Like people like to talk about this stuff. It's a good point, Hank. I I was going to mention in response to that, Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma Theory. We didn't specifically mention him in our sort of management myth episode, but he is a little bit tied in with the Harvard Business School, Michael Porter. Uh, so make what you will of his theories. But his basic argument to me makes some sense is that 
if you're an established company or empire, you have a way of doing business and there's a reason you got to the point where you are because there was a system at one point that worked and then that became bureaucratized and that became systematized. And now that there's an upstart competitor out there that figured out a way to hack into your system, find the good elements, outsmart you and other elements, they don't have that bureaucracy anymore. They can just execute on whatever works in the marketplace or in the sense of like political economy. They can basically outcompete you. And because you have that sort of rigid system established in amber, relatively speaking, and you're not as nimble, you basically fall behind eventually. Uh, so there's lots of analogies, but if you look at China, it basically was sort of the slate was wiped clean after the Japanese invaded and the, the Chinese Civil War. And then the Chinese kind of came up with a system, it didn't really work, they had a cultural revolution, and then Deng Xiaoping flipped it over again. And then that has been working. Um, the American system was sort of fine until the frontier closed, and then, but it was still protected by the oceans and somewhat of a nationalistic, protectionist uh, policy structure to keep industry at home. But when the intermodal shipping container happened and the unions and the sort of communist agitation in the unions in particular and in the country as a whole got the businesses basically sick and tired of the American worker, they just moved all the jobs overseas when they could. And now the multinationals are doing fine, but the middle class is screwed. And so the empire stability is really threatened by this. And the democracy is not fast. It's not nationalistic. I mean, it's basically it's, it's a democracy. And so there's lots of these competing issue uh, interests that don't really work together. And it seemed to be, you know, working better before a lot of these other upstarts were, were happening and technologies coming along, but because it's stuck in this kind of, you know, civic nationalist democratic system, it just can't, it seems like it's trapped and it can't get out of it and so big and there's so many interests that want to just build more highways and shopping malls because that's the only way we can increase GDP even though it's it's not creating sustainable jobs and destroying the environment. It's just, I don't know, the, the incentives just aren't there to, to fix it long term until it breaks down and people are forced to. One of the things that you mentioned, I think, is a really important aspect of these kinds of collapses. When you have a elite, um, if that's a business elite or a political elite, that uh, it doesn't have their interests aligned with the company or the nation and intentionally tries to have their interests not aligned with the company or the nation. So you saw this with the rise of kind of a transnational um, economic elite um, that's perfectly happy to sort of do these busts out, bust outs of uh, individual nations. But I mean, it's really obvious if you look at something like in the 1980s, when you would have uh, these giant leverage buyouts and the way that you do or did historically, because they don't happen as much anymore, um, a leveraged buyout you have a financial firm that has access to a lot of capital. Back in the days, they used to uh, sell junk bonds. And they go scouting around for a company that has a lot of uh, assets that they can strip off and sell, um, basically doing a bust out, if you've ever seen Goodfellas. Um, and... What they try to do is partner with the existing management. So they'll go to management and they'll say, hey, 
we'll give you like n percent of the resulting company and like a pretty fat uh, performance bonus if you help us strip all of these assets off of the company and grind the sucker uh, down to its core essentials and try to turn it into a cash funnel. They take all of the resulting debt, they pile it onto the actual company um, to vastly increase their leverage and make them very susceptible to these sorts of shocks and try to uh, grind out their money back. But the the idea that like management is in on it in kind of a collusive arrangement against the interests of the stakeholders uh, that supply all the effective uh, human capital that actually makes these things run, um, it strikes me as very similar to the idea that uh, you have these transnational financial arrangements where well, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, and her ilk uh, became extremely wealthy by uh, operating in the best interest of effectively a leveraged buyout of the American financial and political system and stripping of massive amounts of assets, uh, you know, primarily in the interest, uh, if you look at the raw numbers, probably of uh, China and, you know, God only knows how many uh, specific grifts along the way. So do, we, do, we, add to that. do we want to talk about uh, what collapse actually means in the mind of both Tainter and Greer? I know Greer has said at a basic level just means the simplification of a society and the simplification of, of organizational. Is, is that his catabolic collapse or just in general collapse to him? I think in general is what he defines collapse as being. Tainter has a... Um, a bit more complex idea of what collapse actually entails, but Hank, maybe do you want to go into that? Yeah, I mean, Tainter's idea of collapse per se was not something that I really um, focused on in terms of his specific uh, definition. Like, as I recall, um, he sort of, you know, in his case studies, he he deals with the uh, the Romans. Uh, the uh, one of the Mayan, I think, just like the Mayans in general, and uh, one of the other South American, uh, uh, South American um, ex empires, I guess. Um, uh, the guy that Chaco, and I think it was. Yeah, or... I mean, I, I don't recall his specific uh, definition, other than kind of the um, the obvious symptoms and the fact that total output. Uh, total output goes down like sim- like the uh, the amount of connections um, to each kind of node in your network dramatically decreases. Um, basically, all of the uh, the symptoms of the uh, uh, shoot the uh, the anti revisionist uh, history of the Roman Empire, where they're like, yeah, actually things did suck after Rome fell. It wasn't this peaceful transition. Um, anyone know what book I'm talking about? Um, yeah, I can't uh, speak to what is specific, uh, if he had like a pithy, uh, definition. Well, I just wanted to know, and this is somewhat, uh, for the audience as well, like what is catabolic collapse exactly as opposed to just other types of collapses? Yeah. Borsley, is there like a distinction between the catabolic nature, um, versus like, I don't know. Is there a non-catabolic uh, collapse that does not have a flashy graph? 
<laughs> well, because I, I, I've had people argue with me about the about this stuff before. Like, there's Ugo Bardi, who's also been influenced by Tainter, who I think through his kind of like Seneca effect, he sees a much more rapid kind of a, a rapid collapse. But the the catabolic collapse of John Michael Greer is basically the because he, he, he uses anabolic and cat the terms anabolic and catabolic so you can think of this kind of like with muscles and like basically it's the way that your infrastructure just breaks down over time the problem with like with when people think collapse is that they think like oh i'm gonna open up my day my my door one day and then there's just bodies strewn around as glanton gangs roam the countryside murdering everybody they they see there now the in a in a situation where you have like true anarchy occurring, like you might get flashes of that. But really, what what a catabolic collapse basically is, is just the co- like the the cost of maintaining your infrastructure becomes too much, and then things begin to break down over time. You know, there's you're going to be able to do to manage some upkeep. You know, it, but it's just like this long downturning, where you're you either do not have access. To the resources anymore, or it's become too expensive to even extract. There was a, I was watching a a, a video of a of a conference. Now the data was has been updated since then, but at the time they were talking about basically what what it took to draw enough energy out of ore because you know they're just like they're going through reserves. So there comes a point where it becomes much much more expensive to be able to extract this, to be able to maintain the infrastructure, the transportation, specifically this the transportation infrastructure to get these to get this energy and material from point A to point B to point C and these costs will keep going up over time. Now of course these people are always trying to figure out what you know this is where the peak oil stuff kind of comes into as well. People are trying to figure out what's the point where we can no longer sustain this where you can't even make a profit on this anymore without being total government incentive to do this funding. But basically once you get to the point where there is no more incentive or it's just too costly and too expensive to maintain you're not going to see it all collapse overnight it's just going to be a, a slow withdrawing as you know kind of like an empire withdrawing from its borders so sort of like how we've seen radio shack slowly but surely disappear as people don't i don't know build their own electronics anymore we've seen sears do the same thing but it's not like it disappears overnight right um, Okay, well you mentioned peak oil it's like and, every every like shock to the capital stock reduces the capital stock self-maintaining ability further which means you have like a cascade effect but it still takes time well i think yeah. shocks are important but i don't i don't know if it's always has let, to be from a shock let, uh, but let ahead. me put it let me let me put it this way like because like this gets into really abstract stuff and be able to like to make it easier for people who are like hearing these words catabolic collapse and like what is that like what what does that mean for me and my family when you're living through a catabolic collapse, like you're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of people in denial about the fact that they're living through a catabolic sure. collapse. They they might say like, oh, you know, things are 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 tough right now, but like you know, better times are just around the corner. We just got to get the right leadership in, or they'll figure something out. People like because you kind of have to puncture through this Hollywood myth of the collapse where again, like I said, like you open up your door and yeah. like that's why like the zombie thing is like so. Well, yeah, it plays on so many yeah. different things. It plays on so many different things, but it also plays on that, like that fear that things are not going to get better. But like, 
it's hard to really conceptualize. Why does he call it collapse though? Is it is it just more sort of zingy? Because remember because you're gonna well because you're gonna deindustrialize, and I don't know like industrial society is, is going to collapse. Well, basically. I would call that a decline because it, it seems like the de- the way you're explaining it, it sounds like it's slow, but a collapse is like the building just fell over, uh, versus the building's kind of kind of slowly crumpled to the to the floor like i don't know uh if collapse is the right word but that's okay i mean that's what he, what he calls it so i think we got I mean, it's it. the that's accelerating it's the accelerating nature of the you know let's just call it a collapse that makes it sort of distinct because things don't get linearly kind of worse and worse it's like if you look at uh venezuela's uh issues that is a they, rapid collapse i don't think that's a well collapse yeah, I mean, like, what is slow or rapid if it's, you know, a time frame? When did they first elect Hugo Chavez? Like well, 2001 or something? some ways doing well during his reign. Now, some of that had nothing to do with him. It was just the stupid price of oil. But it was um, it was like they were clearly much better off under him. And then it was uh, when he died and Maduro took over and various reasons externally probably were pressuring that country as well as the price of oil going down and their costs of supporting their regime going up because of Chavez's programs of social spending. Uh, those two things basically made the sustainability uh, go well, It's negative. like, you, you know, the the price of oil goes down or whatever, you're, you're less efficient at oil production. So you have less money to maintain your oil production. Mm-hmm. So you have less money coming in. So you have less output. And this ripples down because you're also not maintaining your power plants, evidently. So when your power plant catches on fire or the transmission lines caught on fire, whichever one it was, suddenly you have a three-day a three-day power outage instead of a one-hour power outage, which means that there's a lot of food in warehouses that goes bad, which means your transportation infrastructure gets stressed trying to carry in food from everywhere else. You need more oil to do that, but you don't have oil because your refineries suck. It's just this like this culmination. That process takes time because these societies are actually surprisingly resilient. Like yeah. people actually really are good at jerry-rigging things. I mean, you saw in the Second World War where everybody assumed that, well, we're just going to send in some bombers, we're going to level the city. And then this will be so terrible that everybody is going to give up immediately. And at a bare minimum, like the city is going to be economically worthless. But that didn't happen. Like they were still cranking out tanks in Stalingrad in the rubble. Like London was almost flattened and still people were, you know, not like necessarily the happiest but they were still participating in economics politics and warfare yeah so i mean there's like micro scale resiliency built into all these things where people can take a surprising amount of abuse and they're really good at solving uh problems especially if you recognize that you're in a situation and you give people uh the sort of uh, fiat necessary to take care of that but on a macro scale it's like well, there's only so much blood you can get from a stone, and uh, when your entire economy runs on stone blood, uh, <laughs> then you uh, you end up in this recursive death spiral. Uh, yes. Your point's taken about you... Venezuela not happening overnight. I didn't mean to imply that. Yeah. What I was comparing well, Venezuela to is America, for example. I, I think you know we're we got a much I mean, for, regardless of the reasons, I, our decline is slower than what's happening in Venezuela. That's all yeah. my point was. 
Yeah. I would just I would add a metaphor of take take a bridge and the bridge is in decline. It's falling apart. And you don't have a the people who are responsible for this are have become moral and spiritual degenerates. Uh, for, from the perspective of a larger historical time frame, that bridge is already collapsed, despite the fact that you have, you know, cars and people walking across it every day. Yeah, and the bridge may collapse, but you might be able to jury rig a part of it, like say, like half of it's completely gone, but the other half's kind of sticking out of the water. You could probably jury rig something to still make use of part of that raft. That's basically what kind of like a catabolic collapse as a society still goes on. So like as the amount of energy available to power the economy declines, the amount of goodies the economy produces for people to fight over will decrease, but the goodies won't necessarily go away as fast as people would expect and like when they hear collapse, because there is a lot of built-in infrastructure that is still somewhat useful and they can be used for a time without devoting resources to its maintenance. For instance, you can take uh, a homemade wind turbine, a homemade wind turbine made from wooden boards, and a car alternator might never produce enough energy to manufacture a replacement car alternator just because DIY wind turbines made from from these aren't a viable technology to power an industrial civilization. It doesn't mean that uh, you know that such a device isn't wouldn't be useful that's like that's right. the stage is that after after industrial society collapses that career talks about like where you go into this scavenger society and eventually you emerge into what he calls the ecotechnic society of basically how how do you take what you have and still build a you know an advancing functional society based on the fact that your you know this energy resources are they're gone now if i can give a couple of anecdotes and some numbers uh to give flavor to people's understanding of the united states' state of infrastructure uh in my little book exit strategy i mentioned some of this detail uh but the, the my personal actual experience i can add in as well in touring the country i've seen literally what a lot of people have been describing as sort of this slow collapse in the infrastructure itself, um, in particularly hard-pressed economic regions of the country and some of the Rust Belt especially, you will literally see uh, overpasses going over highways where rust is sort of jumping out of the concrete. It, it basically just got so corroded that the rust expanded and, and pushed concrete off of the exterior of the the, the side uh, the, the rail, the side rail of where the cars, you know, can't like drive over off the edge. And then you'll see exposed metal and rust falling off. And there's just not enough money to maintain that. Uh, there's also um, the American uh, Society of Civil Engineers who give annual report cards, regardless of how self-serving you may uh, assume this to be. There are other industry, uh, in manufacturing in particular, industry groups that will look at the state of American infrastructure and talk about how much money it would take to actually fix what we have just to keep it in its current condition for the foreseeable future. Not talking about building new things, but talking about maintaining it. And it's in the order of like $4 trillion that we're not even putting in uh, to get us to that level. And you know, instead of spending that on overseas wars, we could be doing that You know, if we had the correct policies in the government. But it's just not happening. And so what ends up happening is these roads are literally deteriorating slowly but surely. And then we're getting to the point where people on message boards that I'll read occasionally will talk about how there was a road that when they were growing up used to be fine. And now there, there's uh, 
a giant gully running through the middle of it because the city can't raise enough money to pay for the uh, asphalt re-asphalting of the road. Uh, so this is occurring. People are seeing it. Uh, the exceptions, perhaps, are the, the wealthiest of the wealthiest neighborhoods. But overall, there is a decline in the country's infrastructure. And I've even heard this from people visiting the country. And they say, you know, back home, you know, we, the government would employ people to fill potholes. I don't know why there's so many potholes here. And, you know, this wasn't from a quote-unquote first world nation this person was, was coming from. So this stuff is real. I don't see how anybody can really objectively argue that it's not happening. But as Borzoi points out, people are in denial about the fact that we are still a first world country. I mean, this, this is what Trump ran on. One of the you know anecdotes he would give is when he'd land his plane at LaGuardia, where his private jet would go into. I mean, the signage was literally made out of crummy two by fours that were rotten. And I've been in plenty of American airports after visiting countries overseas and just being embarrassed. I mean, how dirty they were, how how badly the, the sort of design was and just the level of disorganization overall with the human capital. I mean, we don't even need to, need to get into that, but it's just the physical stuff is bad. Um, so I, just I saw to... a feral pigeon attack a child in Newark airport. It's <laughs> <laughs> a sign of the times. I mean, but Adam, who, how could people believe otherwise when the fundamental myth of the system is the myth of progress? I mean, how yep. could America be in decline? America right. can't be in decline. The West can't be in decline because the 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 mod, the West or what's left of it is a apotheosis of progress. And that's mm-hmm. uh, that's something that I forget what what he called it, uh, but that's a uh, that's a the John McCulloch has an entire book about that of basically progress being a a religion, and it's because that it's treated as such a religion. And he he writes primarily from the American perspective. He's talked about this before, like that he's aware that there's European perspectives on this, but he doesn't try to speak to that because he doesn't know enough about it. So he's speaking almost entirely from the American perspective on this. And in in America, we have such a huge like our religion, our civic religion is progress. I mean, this is something that even like this is one of one of the many reasons why conservatives are basically useless is you know why we always say that they're you know just twenty years behind the the Democrats is because they also believe in this, you know, in this religion, uh, this myth of progress, that we have to be advancing towards something. And I'm trying to remember with the, oh yeah, like Zizek's things, like there's there's a light in, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, but it might just be a train that's coming to hit us. So we've talked about some of these, um, some of these processes and we've started to get into scenarios, but before we go there, I believe uh, what we're really talking about is the the black thing is uh, it's going up, which causes the oh. blue thing to go down. We're talking can about the you, doom uh, spaghetti can you paint now. Paint us the world picture here. All right, so we're talking about doom spaghetti. All right, so this is this is the doom spaghetti, also known as in capital letters the graph. If you're on Twitter, this you'll see, and you follow me and any of my any of my buds. Uh, you'll see this graph posted as a a meme. So a little bit of background on this. This is the World Three model, which was well, which was developed out of the limits to growth, which had been commissioned by the Club of Rome. So I I know that people have raised concerns about this. This is like this gets into like peak oil stuff and whatnot. We don't necessarily agree with everything in this model, and you can actually do your own modeling with the with this stuff. But that's a that's not germane to this. So 
this graph, this boom and bust graph. You have, starting from the top, going to the bottom, colorful lines. You have resources, which is in blue. You have births, which is in red. You have deaths, which is in black. You have food, which is in green. You have population, which is in light blue. You have services, which is in uh, orange. You have industrial output in green. And then at the bottom, you have pollution in purple, I guess, lavender, whatever. And it starts from 1900, and it extrapolates out to... 2100 and what you see in this is you have the model line and you have the actual data line and according to the world three model their data follows the lines the model pretty quick pretty pretty well but what you see going from 1900 and then hit like everything converging to about people estimate to be around 2040 uh, at least that's what on this graph people debate on what the actual year would be. I don't I don't see the point of even debating years, uh, but you're going to have your resources go down because obviously your resources are limited. We do not live in a infinite world. We live in a finite world. And no matter how much you develop, you refine your processes to basically extract maximum energy out of your resources, you're going to run out of them at a point. It's just that you cannot escape that fact. That's just a natural law right there. So as your resources go down because you're using them up, you're also seeing births going down because of the that effect that has on industrial society. We've seen this time and time again. Industrialized societies lead to uh, lead to less births in the family, and I mean we're hitting that kind of within the West. We're hitting that crescendo where you have people going into full adult and you know, basically you know, sterilizing themselves <laughs> in order to avoid having children at all. Well, once you hit that that kind of like that peak, whether it's peak oil, that catabolic collapse point, whatever it is that you're you know, whatever that point is the deaths are going to start going up because even though the deaths have been going down due to industrialized society with the, you know, basically people living and eating better and getting healthcare and medical like advances, your food supply is going to go up, but then it's going to go down once it hits that same point. And this is all related to that resource line. And the like, what corresponds to all of this is the is the services, which is kind of like electricity and like, and then your industrial output, which have been which from 1900 obviously has been rising up. You reach that point where the resources diminish, that's going to go down. And at that same time, you have pollution rising with industrial output. But once you enter into deindustrialization, which is that 2040 point I've been talking about, where the doom spaghetti basically all converges all at once, the pollution will eventually taper off because you're not creating. The industrialized output for that. Obviously, your industrial output goes down as as well. Population will start to decline as well as well as the deaths go up because you basically hit peak population. This is and, and regardless of the uh, of the graph, peak population has been something that has been debated among ecologists and people who are into this kind of stuff. Like, there's go, like we talk about the how frightening it is to have this exponential population growth. Well, there is going to be a peak population point at some point, just again because again we live in a finite world, so it's eventually going to have to taper off, short of you know basically space colonization, which a lot of people will just think is fake and gay, anyways. But um, that's the that's basically the gist of it. All the all the lines converge at a certain point due to resources being used up. Deaths go up, population peaks, tapers off, pollution peaks, 
tapers off and we just go into a deindustrialized society. Well, yeah, I'm looking I think at there's a oh, go ahead. concise explanation here. Like it, it, like the actual genesis of this thing, it it makes such a nice meme because there's a lot of stuff going on, so you can swap out the labels, of course. It was but funny. I, I've very, seen uh, this. Seldom do you get into the origins of Graph. I, I just want to comment. I've 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 heard of the World Three model uh, some time ago because I was doing some work in in this type of research. And it's pretty surreal to actually be talking with other people about it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of cool and, and weird at the same time. But what I am also, oh, by the way, the, the the sort of convergence happened probably a couple months ago when I was noticing Twitter memes of people with this graph uh, etched onto people's swim trunks. Uh, and this nice. was posted on Twitter. Apparently, this actually is a thing. People are, are wearing this uh, to the beach. But uh, what I was going to say about the graph itself was that the uh, the actual data overlaid against the model predictions um, are not perfectly aligned. But if you've ever done any sort of forecasting uh, and modeling of systems, especially something as sort of complicated as an overall socioeconomic system you would never expect anything to be perfectly fitting itself but i gotta say like i'm looking at the close closeness of the actual versus projected lines they they seem to fit fairly well in my opinion yeah the one the one that was off the most is is deaths and it's likely because uh, so deaths went down a lot more than they were expecting uh through the uh, you know the advancement of industrial uh, society and it's likely because of medic of a lot of medical advancements mm-hmm. and also i'm going to guess as well it might actually have a lot to do with food production as well because of the green revolution well it's also if you look at right above it the births have gone down as well and yeah. so you could ascribe much of the lack of death to be the lack of people you know growing at the rate that they ex- expected it to well well, the population grew. Uh, oh, or it did grow. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I was looking yeah. at population. I was looking at population, not births. Yeah. No, you're yeah. you're correct. You're correct. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I was gonna say before, uh, there was some contention about peak oil, uh, or maybe Hans was thinking of Hubbard's curve. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'm a I'm a peak oil believer. I don't think it's something that has to happen exactly again to the forecast uh, precision level that you would only accept it if it was only off by you know two hours or something i mean a lot of people basically looking at the oil production numbers in the united states for example for example uh, are missing out on the fact that the fracking wells that are being drilled right now are way 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 less productive in the long run compared to the previous wells uh, in the united states and in other countries with the traditional drilling systems the fracking wells basically have to go down and over, use a lot of high-pressure water, takes a lot of energy to get even that to that point, uh, so the yield is not very good. And then in terms of just the extractable oil itself, uh, because you're effectively extracting the stuff from the pockets of rock, not pools of oil, mind you, but pockets of rock that contain a little bit of oil, you're just not going to have a very long-living well. And so these wells are basically running out of oil within three to five years versus traditional wells, which would last for 20 years or more. Uh, and so I think because of the 
well, the, first of all, the industry built up quite a bit uh, in the United States because of this technology when prices of oil were higher. And so that attracted a lot of capital. A lot of companies developed and deployed and purchased fields and put wells in them. They turned those wells off when the price of oil dropped. Prices of oil have come up recently. And so now these companies are basically desperate to get back into the black. And they're trying, there's a lot of people who say the fracking industry has actually never delivered a net return on capital, believe it or not. Um, but, you know, they, these, they're, they're pressured uh, very short term uh, on Wall Street. And so there's a lot of companies that are now, because oil prices went up a little bit, they finally see their chance to sort of grab some profits again. And so there's this, been this mad rush to get back into the game. But again, it's just not going to last very long because they're going to run out. Um, so I, I don't see how peak oil doesn't happen. I, I see it happening. Now, the reason it hasn't happened like some of the predictions were predicting was is because of things like this technology. However, again, this technology does not give you a long-term solution. It gives you a short-term solution. It gives you a little bit of that marginal additional oil that you can find, but it's a hell of a lot more expensive to get it than it used to be. It takes something like uh, five barrels of oil of energy to get, uh, or excuse me, it takes a, a takes one barrel of uh, energy equivalent to get five barrels out of the ground today. But whereas 50 years ago, you would get maybe 20 or 30 or 40 barrels of oil for every uh, barrel of oil energy equivalent you had to put into the ground. So you can see that the trend is not good and it's getting yeah. less and less um, sustainable. And I'm, I'm actually pretty sanguine about uh, oil particularly. Um, almost uniquely, um, that's the only thing that I'm not particularly worried about. Just because there are um, there are technologies that have been um, fairly well uh, field tested um, that can produce uh, oil substitutes at around like 120, 130 uh, dollars a barrel. Um, was what Some of those, however, the, uh, are operating under the current system where they don't have to take up, I mean, renewable, um, like ethanol, for example, currently takes up about 30% of the U.S. corn cropland. If we had to suddenly, and that only covers about 10% of our gasoline needs, if we suddenly had to replace the, the remaining 90% of our gasoline, we'd, we wouldn't have enough corn land. We'd have to start substituting. Oh, yeah. I'm not talking about ethanol, like not certainly not corn ethanol, but things like um, thermal depolymerization, some of the stuff with like weird microbes, um, different chemical processes that basically take organic waste and uh, turn it into uh, various uh, oil um, analogs. You could be right, uh, but I think we're going to have to reduce the amount of oil we, we use ultimately. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would I would say that it's likely that there's an effective long-term price cap on oil um, and a uh, sort of a production uh, basement. Um, you know, whether that's compatible at scale with, you know, the way that American society is set up. I mean, because it's not even, you talk about oil um, primarily, you know, oh, oil, like you burn it to make your cars go and to make electricity. But if you start looking at things like lubricants, like that's where the really scary shit comes in. Uh, when you realize how much of your society and like your individual machinery is dependent on bearings and lubricants sure. and cutting oil for machining parts and all of this stuff that it's very, uh, it's very possible. I mean, they've been making synthetic, uh, synthetic oil for 
you know almost a century i think oh sure motor um, oil the, the synthetic stuff is is quite good actually yeah but i mean it's all about like okay well what's the price that you can produce that at what does it cost to distribute it because you've got to like actually get this to every place that you need civilization which means you now need roads i mean all of this becomes vastly more uh, difficult if you don't have the return on energy invested to support like really dense sources of energy because if you have really high return on energy invested that almost definitionally means you have a really uh, densely concentrated payoff like if you just have a well that's like you know maybe all the infrastructure associated with that is like you know 10 acres and that's just like spewing out oil that's like, you know, you can calculate how many BTUs are available to you at that location. If suddenly you have to like bring in huge amounts of roughnecks from all throughout the country to work on this fracking rig that's bringing chemicals from everywhere across the country to get this stuff out of the ground and then you have to post process it like the aggregate amount of energy like if you're just fracking everywhere, sure. Like you can get like a large amount of stuff, but it's very diffuse. And then you need to redistribute it through these networks in order to reconcentrate it to do useful stuff with it. So the infrastructure issue of how do you actually, you know, how do you translate uh, like these things that are theoretically available into things that are useful at a particular place and time and short notice? I think that's that's one of the symptoms of collapse actually is that well we know this problem is theoretically solvable because we've solved it before but it turns out there's just a whole lot more uh, moving parts and nothing uh, works quite as efficiently as it used to and so the problem never actually gets solved absolutely catabolic <laughs> so well, i wanted to ask about <clears throat> i hear uh, with these discussions a lot of talk about technology uh, what to, I guess, to Greer is the relationship of technology to this form of collapse. Oh, I, that was actually one of the definitions I thought was tied into catabolic collapse. Please correct me. But my understanding of our current state of technology, for example, is that it is becoming increasingly complicated for the people, who, at least who have to design it and, and build it. Now, for the user, it may be becoming simpler, but it's sort of it's hidden underneath a user interface that obscures the complexity. If you look at microprocessors, if you look at software, uh, if you look at the internet as a whole, as a as an integrated system, it's becoming bigger, more complicated, more harder to maintain, and that requires smarter people, frankly, to be involved in the upkeep of that. And, and for if, the user and for the hands making it, because you could have sophisticated technologies assembled. Uh, by the hands of third world uh, peasant slaves. Sure, but they're not designing it. I mean, and, and sort of they're just kind of doing that's, annoying work. That's but, my point. Yeah. This was the this was Spangler's observation: was that the there's a tension between the the innovators, the people in, in Western technological man. Uh, you have the creative genius, the innovator. And then you have the people who are implementing this and the people who are using it. And the users also have their quality of life improved by this and the process of uh, laziness and comfort right. sets in. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of, like, you know, if you look at the graph, I mean, there's many sort of intersecting lines on the sort of uh, discussion of technology itself even. But the 
one of the theories is that because we're getting more and more complicated and because there's a lot of people who basically see that we're getting dumber, I mean, it's the fertility rates uh, of the lesser intelligent people are much higher than the more intelligent people. So we're going to obviously, right now, we're losing the average IQ race. Now, there may be in some areas, you know, a, a increase in smart populations on a very small level, perhaps, but overall uh-huh. they're, they're losing out. And this is going to create a long-term sustainability problem because our technology cannot continue to get more complicated because there's not going to be enough smart people to maintain it. And so what the collapse thing, uh, the theory is that it's going to collapse to a state in which it can no longer collapse further, or at least there's enough incentives to keep it not from collapsing. And I think we're going to, that's an, just another pressure point against complexity. And I think we're going to well, run out. Well, of it's the, there's a tragic, stuff. the tragic irony built in to mass society is that mass society or egalitarian society is actually built by superior men. So in it has the seeds of the undoing of superior men. Well, Nick, when you ask about the the technology, do you mean like technology to try to mitigate, try to sustain the system, or at least try to manage the decline in some like developing new technology, or what? Like, or do you mean like kind of like the technology of the future kind of thing? Well, in the, in the Spenglerian model, for example every high culture and then the civilization that comes after it is expression of certain unique qualities of their race soul. And okay. to Spangler, uh, Northern European man, Aryan man, Faustian man, which have you, uh, one of his defining qualities is his mastery of techniques and machine techniques. Uh, so if the collapse that we're talking about, I'm sure I, having not read Greer, I would speculate he avoids uh, framing it this way. But when you talk about collapse or civilizational collapse is a collapse of a given race people. Oh, actually, no, he he does touch on that. He he actually oh. does touch on that. In, in Dark Age America, for instance, he talks about like, like I mean, like he does not get into specifics because, you know, you did, you'd be a fool to try and make you know, very definite predictions of the future. But he basically gives you generally like what you can expect from, you know, based on past trends and an understanding of civilizational collapse. He does talk about like the way that uh, racial breakdown, for instance, in the land that once was the United States. So, like, for instance, you know, like English, like the English language would be much more localized to the north and northeast. That's where like what, you know, what the white ethnic group would become would be the majority there whereas by contrast in the southwest you're gonna it's going to be you know a highly indian mestizo uh very mixed uh kind of location but going into like these stages so uh john michael greer and ecotechnic society basically says there's gonna be four stages to go through you have right now we're in industrial society and then once like when the graph kicks in and you go into deindustrialization, you have scarcity industrialism that's what happens when the energy stops being abundant you you know and people are going to obviously be in, de- in denial about this so they're always going to be looking for for more energy you're going to be going through all the system shocks that uh, that occurs from that that's going to be a very t- much more tumultuous time period then you'll go through like the scavenger societies where the resources have dwindled to the point that you can't build new industrial infrastructure you just like you you can try to keep what you can running like you might be able to jury rig something, that was your but, windmill example yeah that's like the the scavenger society where basically like now like it's starting to settle in like oh we're not going back to the way 
things where we have to make do with what we've got. But life goes on. Like societies persist. Human beings create new civilizations. And so, for one thing that the, might depart from the Spenglerian sense, and I, please correct me, I'm not a huge you know Spengler scholar, but his sort of cyclical view of history implies that you can return to the sort of peak at which you're sort of arguably at or at least re in the recent past. Um, but one thing I have heard about the sort of nature of resource depletion on earth is that the industrial revolution already happened. And so they got their start because if you imagine our technology level degrading because the, for all the factors we just discussed to a point where we can no longer extract from deep in the earth, you know, the, the ore that we need to create the sort of bridges and find the coal to burn the furnaces, to create the energy, to, to melt the ore, to make the steel. Uh, we're, we can't have another industrial revolution because the industrial revolution basically started by the virtue of the fact that in, in England, they could basically just dig five feet under the ground and pull a bunch of coal out to yep. make their, the beginnings of the industrial revolution. If we've already degraded to the point where we, we've lost the technology to do what we're doing now, the resources are going to be so much harder to get that second time around. And we, it, we will have to create an even more advanced level technology, which is not possible without some logical progression uh, in order to, to get even the basics going. And so that implies that you may never even get back to where you were. Well, we're not. Well, but it's not. It's not just the limitation of resources. It's it's the decline, the spiritual decline, of the Western ruling elite, because what they've done is they've exported these technologies and these processes to the colored world, and so now they, as opposed to just extracting from them, and the the pre, the previously colonized, have turned against Western civilization, their former masters. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I uh, it's, well, I, I guess it's like that's going to be what the the question of what the future kind of looks like because if you know if people if we survive through the, um, through the the scavenger society, what Greer argues we'd be going into would be the ecotechnic society, which is that's what's what will remain with of, of all the relics. So once like industrial technology is gone, nothing useful can be you know, created from the remains. Um, it's, we're not going to, like, basically we're not going to be going to, like, to be, we're not going to be, be becoming medieval peasants or going into, like, an Anne Prim society or anything like that. It's just that the technologies that can make it through the long bottleneck of renewable energy and resources only are going to be the ones that will still manage to be around. And, you know, certain technologies will persist due to, due to the Alindi effect. Like, things are, we're going to basically be going into this kind of weird, um, weird future you know assuming that like you know assuming we, i guess like not everything is destroyed as much as possible because of like the various nuclear uh the the nuclear weapon problem we have and the nuclear plant problem we have but we're going to be the ecotactic society that greer argues that we're going to be going into and this is like hundreds and hundreds of years in the future it's like we're talking 200 300 years is going to be this weird mishmash of the technology that can survive and that you can develop off of without the industrial revolution technology so, what did he call the society again? It was something technic, and and my question eco -technic, is, eco technic. So, what is the technic part of the eco? Is this like uh, the Guillaume Fay theory of uh, 
archaeofuturism? Like, what exactly is the technic aspect in Greer's? I, I think it's a revision. I again, having not read, I think it's a revision of Spengler because Spengler would define the North European high high culture then civilization and its later stages having the machine technic. So I think he's uh, replacing machine technic with ecotechnic. Absolutely, yeah. But can you give me an example of what an ecotechnic does? Or if it's not a person, like what is it? Like is, like what does the society look like to? to... It, it sounds kind of like you'll have the persistence of some technologies that don't require, uh, kind of complex capital input for their upkeep. So you'll have a lot of kind of odd legacy stuff. You'll have a lot of okay. economic development patterns driven on the local level by what happened to be uh, available. Um, and self-maintaining on a micro scale. Um, stop me if this is sounding. Uh, oh, well, I, sh- I should make clear what, what technology is in a Spenglerian sense. A te- technology is man's uh, creative technology is man's ability to alter modes of living, ways of living. Hmm. So it it would be, I suppose, uh, all forming ways of surviving and living uh, based no longer on purely machinery, but on some other. I don't know, subsistence farming or some shit. Oh, okay, so the technic is not necessarily a, a hybridization a of like a machine and sort of like yeah, yeah, yeah. Precisely. farming. The, the it's basically, is, yeah, the technic is the farming or the natural way yeah, of living per, itself. Well, permaculture, basically uh, permaculture for one is like the, in the developments of that is something that Greer talks about a lot in um, in, in ecotechnic future. Like that as... Okay. Kind of, I think that would be an example of that. I mean, one one thing that he he talks about when he talks about the ecotechnic society is that it's hard for us to even imagine what that would even actually look like because we're talking about something that's you know you're trying to extrapolate yeah. you know hundreds of years into the future. But basically, you're going like the technology that works is going to be the technology that works, yep. whereas everything else will be cast by the wayside. But like basically, like the time period that we are living in, this time of abundance with this with these ridiculous widgets and the and this you know, like the, these monuments to the industrial revolution that we have built, these are going to be like the myths and legends yeah. of societies hundreds of years in the future. Yeah, and we Borzai, Borzai, I, let me, let me read to that end. Let me read Spengler. Uh, the mach- this machine technics will end with the Faustian civilization and one day will lie in fragments forgotten. Our railways and steamships as dead as the Roman roads and the Chinese wall. Our giant cities and skyscrapers in ruins like old Memphis and Babylon. The history of this technics is fast drawing to its inevitable close. It will be eaten up from within, like the grand form of any and every culture. When and in what fashion, we know not. Faced with this destiny, there is only one world outlook that is worthy of us. That which has already been mentioned as the choice of Achilles. Better a short life, lull of deeds and glory than a long life without content. Already the danger is so great for every individual, every class, every people, that to cherish any illusion, whatever, is deplorable. Time does not suffer itself to be halted. There is no question of prudent retreat or wise renunciation. Only dreamers believe there is a way out. Optimism is cowardice. Literally that, but with permaculture. That's ecotechnic future. 
So yeah, let's mm. go. Monument, it's just yeah. Like we we and this is something that Greer talks about. Like we may very well be the devils of the future because of the society that we left behind. If they connect our you know our, the way our wastefulness and our inability yeah. to cherish what we have to and because like. Greer paints a very grim picture in Dark Age America of absolute just ecological disaster wrought by our inability to keep things in check. We be slaveholders. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't how he's basically seeing this coming from limits to resources. Is that the primary reason? He's not talking about the stuff that probably Nick is theorizing no about it, the, the yeah, yes and no i mean like he's he, like, he basically greer just takes spangler and adds ecology to him but yeah. is he spangler, including spangler the racial aspects well there we go so i mean i'm sorry I mean, when, I, when i say ecologist Spang, spangler was an ecologist of history right i'm just i mean i mean like uh biological like okay environmental ecology i'm just saying like adding adding that to it okay it's uh, that's I mean that's like that's the core of Greer like where he taught like he like, you he's the arch like you go he's got this whole thing of fashioning himself as the arch druid but like the guy focuses heavily on basically collapses collapse of civilization he goes to painter he goes to Spangler he see he, like he views environmentalism through the lens of of civilizational collapse. Like he doesn't he doesn't get into like just the science like he doesn't focus it on it like from a scientific angle like of uh, you know like the, we have this level of pollution in our water and these are the the solutions we you know we need to apply to that because mm -hmm. the system's not like we have seen this rise and fall happen constantly in every empire and every civilization the same patterns repeat themselves the problems are not going to be solved so does he have any particular suggestions or is he basically just saying we we have no we have no way out of it it's inevitable we just need to what collapse his novels collapse, i mean collapse collapse now and avoid the rush so that is Fate. so he does have some pragmatic tips but he doesn't That's, expect most people i would imagine to do that and so it's really just kind of this uh, nox remnant or something that is going to be able to do that and then does he see organization of those people to build a greater good or is it just everybody go off into the forest and set up your little huts i mean is there anything more well, to it than just great personally Greer personally he lays a lot of this out in in decline and fall he he you could probably regard him as like a burkean kind of conservative he he really holds to this uh, and he he talks about tocqueville a lot he holds to this idea of uh, backward people when there was this level of civic engagement in the united states when people were interested in their own communities and could be like you know when the when the place they lived in required something people could come together and make that happen we don't really live in that time period anymore and so for or Greer, because like, on the systemic level, we're not going to really be able to just like, you know, like somebody's not going to be able to run for president and fix these problems. It all starts at the local level. Now, he, you know, if if you had this giant, you know, consciousness sweeping the country where people were like like actually interested in solving these systemic problems and we're starting at the local level, like then you could probably see like some change happen because 
uh, Greer argues that change comes from the ground up. I think he's just rather pessimistic that that's even really going to happen. But if you're going to make a go at it, the place to start is in relocalization, in forming community bonds, in having practical skills that can survive lean times. He talks about people living living poor lives with dignity because he believes you're going to be going through leaner times no matter what and the more you're prepared for that the more people are going the more you're going to have people who are able to respond to those problems and might even be able to possibly better better mitigate those problems we don't know but the part the thing is is that it has to start on the local level and until that groundwork and that you know social capital is built in we're just all going to be little atomized people watching bits and pieces of, of the country collapse around us, helpless to do anything about it. And one of the interesting things, I mean, it's tempting to kind of look at uh, all of the historical collapse scenarios through the lens of the present where it's already happened and it happened at a particular time. And you can say, like, ex post, like, oh, the Roman Empire, it was doing good around, you know, what, like 200 BC. And then there's this peak and uh, some stuff happened, and then uh, decline and fall. But it's history is replete with examples where you had uh, reconsolidations that happened. Like, you had things in the Roman Empire, again, uh, like the crisis of the third century that were successfully resolved or i mean the byzantine empire which you know descaled in the sense that it was just a more compact contiguous uh, zone in a different uh more hospitable neighborhood with more uh, robust institutions that survived for another thousand years so it's not strictly you know I don't want to say that it's not inevitable because I'm actually very like long, long term pessimistic. Like if you gauged out 2000 years, it's like, oh, it's not not a whole lot of upside on that uh, that time frame for a variety of reasons. But I mean, given given the amount of accreted local social economic and political capital in like fairly defensible parts of you know the united states for one but also i mean what are the odds that like new zealand actually collapses you know in a in a greerian sense like there could be some kind of world spanning plague but of course they could just you know shut all their ports uh you know via that uh, biology game style um, I mean, if the rest of the world economy goes to shit, they'll have problems importing some capital goods, but they do have a local industrial base. Like, there's islands of uh, order, even in these uh, collapse scenarios, that I think the there's like this no bootstrap theory, like the thing about, um, oh, all the easy ore is already gone, like, you know, if we deindustrialize everywhere, then it's impossible to bootstrap. But the whole process of the industrial revolution wasn't really like, oh, like surprise, there's all this iron ore on the ground. It's much more revelatory if you look at uh, things like the machinery bootstrapping process, where they figured out how to use like one lathe to make a more precise lathe. Um, and so on and so on until you've got like 
this whole machining sector um, that can make you know, very interesting things very cheaply and productively. And that sort of bootstrapping process is ultimately a factor of, you know, if you have human capital that's allowed to deploy itself at some kind of minuscule level of uh, industrial resources, I, I really find it difficult to see like global collapse scenarios short of like really huge asteroids that uh, manage to um, kind of permanently ground that sucker. I mean, I I, I, I could I see the empire re- reconsolidating if it was to reorient itself in terms of its relationship to the the outside colored world, as well as if the true culture stratum of the people was able to purge itself of the nefarious alien elements, and you had a new vitalism where people who were able to have creative solutions and who had the will to carry it on were able to ascend to power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I largely agree with that as well. It's like the collapse to, like the real collapse is basically the collapse of of the of the spirit in America. I mean, like, you know, we as talk, all as the collapse of any civilization yeah. always is. Yeah, and when you look across, I mean, like when you look across America, because like we, you know, we have our, you know, people cling to that Second Amendment, you know, as as though that actually like you know, effectively does means something, but like you look at what should be the local community of what should be, you know, the very foundational block of any kind of, of like any revival movement, you know, to come out of something, anything local, uh, localized is you see a completely degenerated people from like, you know, to the, from the Walmartian to the person hooked on opiates to basically, you know, or to like the dopamine fiend that's basically strung out on technology. Like there's no will or spirit to fight or survive in many pockets of the united states of people just simply existing and that's greer that greer talks of I'm, mentions that basically like it when hard times come come there are going to be people who are just going to choose to to die than have their lifestyles be you know interrupted in any way i support localism as a way for us to cope with what's happening and survive however uh, no no extension of the civilization no you know no 2000 more years of the empire can come unless that that vitalism happens to the upper stratum the elite mm-hmm. that's where it needs to happen in order for on a civilizational scale for it to continue yeah i don't think any of us know for certain what's going to happen and i think i can foresee all these scenarios being in the realm of possibility and i think what's important about what uh, all of us have said is that these are possibilities and if we want to increase the odds of what we arguably all share and then individually we have some disagreements but overall you know we can kind of work together and probably try to set aside some of the petty differences uh, we can increase the odds if, if we pick a good strategy experiment learn from our mistakes and move forward but we also have to be reminded that it's not a guarantee and I, yeah. I would hope and I would argue that the fact that it's not a guarantee would motivate us a little bit to take it a little more seriously and a little bit more passionately than some people who would just argue that, oh, well, they will figure it out. The smarter people or the people <laughs> in power will figure it out. Well, they're not. I mean, look at the evidence. I mean, there's there's just not enough evidence to show that we're... No, I don't mean the people currently in power. No, they I know you're not. I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the people who are in denial about the, the decline in and of itself. 
And then they're typically like, well, you know, the, that's what the, the government is for. The government will figure figure out a solution. These are the types I'm talking about. Uh, and uh, it, it will be the free market that figures it out. <laughs> or that. Or that. <laughs> uh, one, one last thing I guess I'd, I'd like to say is just because if people are listening to this, they probably follow, you know, some of us on Twitter. So they've probably seen the graph memes. And I have a hashtag graph Twitter where I discuss basically like elements of this kind of deindustrialization, this catabolic collapse stuff. But, you know, it's also about talking about sustainability, you know, and what you can do to, you know, do what Greer calls collapse now and avoid the rush, which what that means is to basically be living, you know, within your area, like being able to live, like, were something to happen, are you basically prepared for it? Is really like just the long and short of that. But people get really despondent about this stuff because it, I think it just ultimately comes from the fact that they don't want to believe that they're living in a decline and that we're we're just going like somebody's just going to engineer our our way out of this. Is this is the the whole point of this is these are hard to swallow pills like these are hard to you know hard to swallow truths that. Ultimately, you have to confront. And if you want to have this hope of actually turning things around, like it starts with confronting what the actual reality is. It's like, and it's you know, it goes, it couples with all the stuff that Nick's talking about of the vitalism and the like. But until you have an accurate assessment of the actual situation you're in and that your civilization is in, like everything else is just is just coping or. Like a snake well, the, oil to try and figure it the out. The reality, of course, is that civilization itself is decline, and it's just yeah. a question of how long you can stretch that out for. Yeah, well, that's and that that was actually like the, that was one of the things in the in the graph. Uh, when you, if you see the meme version of it, like there's a, there's a sustainability model that they had developed, but we're unfortunately we're past the point of that. We're, we we can't go. We can't get that sustainability model working, but I mean that's like those of us on Grafter that started this. Like we used to be the like we used to be the original Pine Bros. That when that emoji kind of like lost its um, its meaning, that's why we adopted the graph to kind of make our ideas a little bit more clear. We're what's called uh, right wing decelerationists, and we say this in the in the technological sense, not the not the cultural political sense. Is that we're you know. Well, technological accelerationism we just don't think is going to happen. But our right-wing decelerationism, our DEC, is about managing the the decline in a sense in an extremely sensible right-wing way, which is like that's the normative way. It's like it's just right-wing because it's normative. Isn't I, I hate to be pedantic, but isn't wouldn't it be more accurate to say you're a complexity decelerationist because how how could you be a technology? decelerationist when you're actively trying to find solutions to problems that's, it, it, that's technology okay. yeah, yeah like it's that. i mean it's, it, it was just a way to like, just because decelerating is the opposite of accelerating like it's it, it's not a serious thing in terms of like an act like a serious actual ideology it's basically just taking this the, this realistic look of like accelerationism isn't going to happen. We're going to go into decline. Let's manage that. Let's and we're going to manage it in a sensible, normative way. Well, th- these these are good themes, and uh, and the fact that uh, Nick mentioned complexity, I think, is is apropos because technology is not inherently bad, in my opinion, and nor is civilization necessarily bad in the kind of context of what the world is. 
individually, yes, we might become softer, weaker because we are dependent upon technology. However, taken as a whole, if you are in a group of people with no technology, just you don't have to go look any further than the Native Americans versus the settlers of North America coming from Europe. You do need to be able to survive at the end of the day. And if your competitor is more than willing to use the best tools available and you are not for ideological reasons or ecological reasons, you may get wiped out. And so this is the sort of conundrum that we face when we're dealing with a, a the real world, frankly. And it's also uh, what Kaczynski talks about in his anti-tech revolution is that the incentives, are unfortunately, are not there for people to voluntarily give up their conveniences and implements of productivity because if they do so, they will lose power, lose status, lose money. And so it's the very difficult. The problem is not the hammer itself. The, the problem would be the spirit behind the hammer or the intention behind the hammer. Or more accurately, the problem is not the dick pick app. It's the intention and the spirit of the culture that was able to create a dick pick app. Well, this is getting into a whole other debate on that. Well, that's actually getting like into the Kaczynski debate where he basically says there are no good hands holding technology. But I don't know if that's something you guys want to get into right now. Well, I don't have any easy answers for, for damn sure. I just, I, I think when we when we want to change things, we have to be... He's uh, wrong. Or sorry, he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you and I can have a Kaczynski debate okay. another time, Mr. Nick Mason. I know your opinions on this. Well, what I was getting at also was civilization itself, aside from technology, uh, to me means, you know, organization of community on a large scale. And if you're political, uh, regardless of whether you care about having things to shop for at Walmart, uh, organization matters. And that's a technology in and of itself. And so I don't necessarily see civilization being bad, but it does come with a lot of faulty, um, faulty promises that the, the continual progress and progression of certain aspects do not always lead to good outcomes. Uh, I don't have any easy answers, but I don't see the answer being get rid of civilization because again, you have many societies that have basically just been wiped out if they didn't have the organizational yeah. structure. It's all, you're, you're correct, Adam. Politics, war, economics, these are technologies. They're the technologies right. of civilization. Uh, yeah. So if, if I was to say I'm neutral to technology, I would just say it is what it is. And man's relationship to it is it's an, it's an intellectual fact, particularly the case of, of Aryan man. And so I will I will close here on, on Spangler again. As the soul strides forward in an ever-increasing alienation from all nature, the weapons of the beasts of prey are natural, but the armed fist of man with its artificially made, thought-out, and selected weapon is not. Here begins art as a counter-concept to nature. Every technical process of man is an art and is always so described. So, for instance, archery, equitation, the art of war, the arts of building and government, of sacrificing and prophesizing, of painting and versification, of scientific experiment, every work of man is artificial, unnatural, from the lighting of a fire to the achievements that are specifically designated as artistic in the high cultures. 
The privilege of creation has been wrested from nature. Free will itself is an act of rebellion and nothing less. Creative man has stepped outside the bounds of nature, and with every fresh creation, he departs further and further from her, becomes more and more her enemy. That is world history, the history of a steadily increasing, fateful rift between man's world and the universe, the history of a rebel that grows up to raise his hand against his mother. This is the beginning of man's tragedy, for nature is the stronger of the two. Man remains dependent on her, for in spite of everything, she embraces him like all else within herself, and all the great cultures are defeats. Whole races remain inwardly destroyed and broken, fallen into barrenness and spiritual decay as corpses on the field. The fight against nature is hopeless, and yet it will be fought out to the bitter end. They're making the last film They say it's the best And we all help make it It's called the death of the West The kids from fame will all be there Free Coca-Cola for you And all the monkeys from the zoo Well, there'll be extras too they're making the last film They say it's the best And we all help make it It's called the death of the West A star is rising in our northern sky And on it we're crucified A chain of gold is wrapped around this world We're ruled by those who It's called the death of the West. 